for tuning in to another episode of the TTE podcast. And uh, the last couple of days, my heart has just been really heavy um, with the shooting of Dante Wright up in Minnesota. And I've just sort of felt a certain type of way about it. And so um, I wanted to take this opportunity to sort of um, explore some of that, but also um bring in two people i had the opportunity to have a really good conversation about um cancel culture and a lot about how we're living in two very different americas and um i wanted to talk through that so with me today is uh my brother brian and my cousin Artie. fellas how you guys doing good how you doing good fantastic fantastic so um like i mentioned uh my heart's been heavy the last uh, a few days, um, not just with the shooting, but with George Floyd's trial. And like, honestly, like I'm, I'm realizing in the last, you know, year or so since George Floyd was murdered, that um, these things are really sort of triggering events for me. And so it's really difficult for me to watch or pay attention to the trial. It's very difficult for me to see these videos of innocent black men getting killed or, or, or harassed like this, um, the army Lieutenant in Virginia that got pulled over and pepper sprayed and all that while he's in uniform. And, um, you know, it just sort of reinforces, you know, what Kaepernick was talking about, you know, four or five years ago, which we can get into later, but, um, I'm starting to realize that there is a, um, I think, a le- and this is really what I want to explore with you guys, is I think there is a level of trauma that inherently lives in all black people in this country, specifically, um, you know, those are bo- those that are born and raised here specifically, because I always understood concepts like being triggered and trauma and those sorts of things. But now for maybe the first time in my life, I'm really having to deal with it. And so now I'm starting to see everything in a much different light. And I'm curious from your perspectives, and Artie, I'll start with you, not necessarily if you feel the same way I feel, because I think that's an unfair question, but I'm curious as to what sort of things run through your mind, what sort of feelings do you have relative to when you see um things like George Floyd or Dante Wright or Philando Castile or, or Breonna Taylor, like just the fact I can rattle their names off bothers me because I shouldn't know them because when you bring up their names, you think about one thing instantly. And for me, automatically that's sort of like a trigger and I'm really bothered by it. But Artie, from your perspective, like what sort of things do you experience and think about when you hear or see things like that? Oh, well, that's kind of tough. Uh, for me, I'm, I'm an optimist at my core. So for me, I, it's almost like a chance for us to get it right again. As weird as that sounds, because I'm like, we've known, like in the black community, the history, obviously, of, of black people in America. And for so long without social media, without all these news and media, it was happening like just to us and no one really knew. It was like a dirty joke or inside thing. Like we know how we're treated. We know all the justice, but we always had that hope, at least for me, that if more people saw stuff could change. So, so when something like that happens, 
it's like, okay, everyone sees what's been going on for years. Maybe now we can change or we can make positive progression on how to change law enforcement or just the country's views on how blacks and minorities have been treated throughout history. And that lasts for maybe two hours after the footage happens. And then, nope, back again in that. And it's like almost like a roller coaster of emotions. Then it's like depression and just you don't helplessness of our situation. And then the next time I'm like, okay, maybe this one will will stick with the culture, but it doesn't happen. It's disheartening. It is already because I feel like that's part of the trauma, at least for me, is you people often know what the right thing is, but they won't do it. And so because you lack the courage or, or whatever it is. And, and that for me is part of the trauma is having to relive it over and over and over. Um, but Brian, what, what's your perspective on all this? I mean, I have multiple feelings about it. I mean, there's one where like this is a movie that we've all seen before, right? And to already to your point, it's something that we've seen this movie before on some level. I think if you polled black people in general and you asked them, how is this going to turn out? I wouldn't bet. I, I don't know how much I bet on it, but I'd be willing to bet there'd be a lot who would say, yeah, they're probably going to get off because they always get off because they always get off. Like, the percentage of t- instances where they're actually found guilty or they go to jail or prison, something other than just being reassigned to desk duty. Uh, like a, the guy who shot Jacob Blake was a best guy in Wisconsin, right? Yeah, that's uh, correct. That guy's back on the beat now. So, um, so we are accustomed to this movie in terms of, um, of nothing happened. So, uh, in a weird sort of way, I'm kind of anticipating that, you know, something might not happen or, you know, certainly they're charging with manslaughter. So, okay. Um, me and Dennis, uh, Dennis and I, we've talked offline and, you know, one of the things that you said when George Floyd happened was you hoped that it was an opportunity for like, you, you felt like that moment felt different. And, I said, and I told you, I hope that you're right, but I don't feel like anybody's going to learn a lesson six months to a year from now. And lo and behold, we're almost at a year and we've still had this thing going on and it's, nobody's learned a lesson. So I'm hopeful. I'm also, I'm always cautiously optimistic that things will turn out the way that they should, but you know, it's really hard to have faith in a system that's not historically has not been for people that look like us. I agree. And I, I think what I struggle with is, is that there is a huge acknowledgement um, publicly by corporations, by sports leagues, by sports teams that this is wrong. This can't continue and yet and nothing it, happens. It's, nothing it's, it, changes. It's it's maddening. It's maddening because it's the invoke thing to do to because you don't want to be the one who doesn't have a statement out there. Um, but uh, and this is kind of a divergence, but kind of in the same lane. So, you know, you think about what happened over the summer with George Floyd and everything that was going on. Um, so you think about that Georgia voting law. Right. 
like Coke and and Delta and all these other companies were had to almost be dragged kicking and screaming to go out against it. So you guys were out here during the summer talking about your diversity and how big this is and all that stuff. But then when it's uh, when it's time to show up in another instance, you're like, I don't know. Like it's all intertwined. Like either you're down and you're going to, you know, you're going to, you either you are either you're in or you're out, really. Because at this point, I don't see how anyone can deny that these things happen. So it's not a matter of if it happens. We all can acknowledge that it happens. The question is, where are you on this? Are you in or are you out? Yeah, I I, I agree, and I think to a, a point, I think a larger point that I think you're making, um, is is just follow the money. And so for a long time in, in, in this country, since its beginning, since its founding, um, and before that, European countries, um, it was profitable to be racist. It was profitable to get into the slave trade. And because of that, we're still dealing with the fallout of those um, decisions. And so... You know, I'm already preparing myself for the fact that Derek Chauvin's going to get acquitted. It's going to be a hung jury to some degree, and we're never going to get any level of justice. And so my question sort of rhetorically is, why is the color of my skin? Why does the color of my skin scare you so much? And the only logical conclusion I can come to is that people were fed a bunch of bullshit things that weren't true, and you believe them, and those things got handed down. I mean, if you think about it logically, how in the world could you ever call any black person lazy when we were forced to to help build this country against our will? It doesn't make any sense at all. And you and I and Artie and so many people in our family, so many of our friends that are like family to us, are hardworking people. You would never deem or dream of calling them lazy. And the other thing I find um, is a bit of a trigger for me and is a bit traumatic is when I see things like um, Dante Wright getting shot and then all of a sudden the spin comes. Well, she meant to grab her taser, but she grabbed her gun. It was a mistake. Eh, Come on. If you've been a cop for 26 years, it's hard to believe that that's a mistake. The only thing I'll buy is that she panicked, she was human, and she panicked in the moment. But even then, you know who doesn't get to panic in the moment is an air is an airplane pilot. That guy's responsible for the lives, or woman is responsible for the lives of so many people. You don't get to have a bad day, and that's part of the job. And I or get the, the or the person who gets pulled over. That's I somebody who looks like it. We don't have the option to panic either. And, right. And so it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And so like a friend of mine today posted something um, where he said he went to take his dog to the vet and he took his dog to the vet. And because of COVID, he has to sit in the car and while, you know, they come and get the dog from the car and bring him back and the whole nine. And he thought to himself, He hoped no one called the cops on him because they thought he was suspicious simply because he was waiting for his dog at the vet. And I I need people to really understand that that's the type of bullshit 
that is exhausting to have to live with every single day of your life. And, you know, the whole, you know, I feel sorry for you. I wish there was something we could do. Blah, blah, blah. No, there is something you can do. Don't, you know, I, I hate to be a sort of single vote person or a single issue voter. But at this point, if you can't elect people that really believe in basic fairness and decency under the law, then I, I can't, it's going to be really difficult for me to have any sort of association with you if you tell me that you care about me as a person and as a human being, and then you come back and vote for people who are against my basic human rights. And that's just where I'm at with it. And it shouldn't be that way, but I'm not into what it should be anymore. I, I, uh, uh, you know, Tubbs, we just, where we from, we call it, uh, we just call it like a spade's a spade. And so I, I, I can't, I can't traffic in, and being nice about, you know, shit anymore. Like my heart is heavy and I'm exhausted and I'm tired and I feel, and as exhausted as tired as I am, I'm not nearly as exhausted or as tired as the people who are actually out in these streets putting the work in, trying to make this a better place. And they get nothing for their hard work. So I'm not into corporate slogans. I'm not into um, moments of silence anymore. Um, I just I just want to see things change. And if you're going to stand in the way of that change, then... I don't know how I can really associate with anybody who's going to stand in the way of that change. So if if me getting equal rights means you might pay more in taxes, my humanity is not negotiable. And that's that's just kind of how I, I feel about it. But um, not to go on a rant there, but my my heart is heavy right now. I, I, I understand. I just it's such a I don't complex issue and a not really a, it's a black and white issue but it's no pun intended but it's a complex on how to fix it because it's so intertwined with every aspect of society but hold on already um, but hold on hold, hold that thought for a second is it that but is it that hard to, is is it complex to do the right thing See, that's where I struggle it's only complex because there's people on the other side that refuse to negotiate in good faith out of some fear that doesn't exist. That kid got shot because he had an outstanding warrant for weed possession for $346. You're telling me that's what his life was worth? $346? You could have issued him another ticket and we could have went on about his life. We got processes and systems for this. That's not complex. Exactly. And and that's the thing, but it's like, I don't know how you, fix everything at once so oh, that, that i agree with it's it's so, not an overnight thing you're not going to be i, I had like i had a conversation earlier with someone and i was like this may be wrong for me to say but i feel as a black person police brutality and unjust that is just baked in the cake at this point that that situation besides re- retraining police to do the right thing and to view like black people as not threats as actual human beings that's going to take time. But what we can do overnight is hold police officers and people in authority accountable for their actions. So I can, I'm more 
into fighting that fight. Like, like I, if this girl, if it was, if she panicked, like you said, and the I don't buy the whole BS of I thought it was a taser because you it's not your first day on the job. But I do agree. I do think she she reverts back to old habits, old training, or instinct, and she panicked. And I can see her doing that. But at the end of the day, like you said, people just can't have bad days. Some jobs, so you're you're automatically gone. And I hope she she made a mistake. Like if I was a being in the medical field, if you think a syringe is normal saline or water, and you give them morphine and kill them, sure you you could they could have been had a heart attack, could have been a crazy situation, but you still killed them, and you. So you need to suffer the consequences for that. Right. Exactly. And I, and I think that's exactly right. Like I get that she didn't intend to, um, my understanding is based on the video that, you know, she immediately reacted like, Oh my God, I didn't mean for that to happen and, and everything else. But you know, people just, you're, you just can't have a bad day. Like, I'm sorry. hundred percent. So like, she just, well, and, and to your point, uh, already, cause I was kind of thinking the same thing. Like, um, you can't make that mistake. And even if we're going to go and give her, and we talked about this before, the concept of grace, right? So if let's say I'm going to give her grace and say, okay, it was a mistake. Okay. Well, it was a mistake, but you still got to be accountable for that. You still got, I don't want to say you got to pay for that, but like you have to be held accountable for that mistake. Even if it, even if it was you, obviously, you know, you know, she says it was a mistake. So okay, fine. But you still have to be held to account for that in the same way. Like already, like you said, if you give somebody something that you're not supposed to give them, like yeah, okay, it was a mistake, but you probably gonna get fired. Yeah, or you gonna get sued. Exactly. Or you gonna like you're gonna so, lose your medical so, license. Something's it's you're gonna have consequences. Something, something of significance is going to happen because you made that mistake. And here's the thing: if you're telling me that you're maybe like. You know, a couple of years on the job. And I know we're kind of just hypotheticals, just kind of talking here, but that woman was on the job for 26 years. She should know the difference, the feel between a taser and a gun. I would think. I would agree, and again, that's why I'm I'm I I have some level of empathy only in the sense of in a situation that is potentially spiraling out of control. She made a rash decision. From a human perspective, I think everyone's done that. However, again, you in that line of work cannot afford to have a bad day, just like an airline pilot, just like the captain of a ship. You're not, you can't have a bad day. This is sort of what you signed up for. And I think the other thing I struggle with is why is there an assumption that he was a threat simply because he went back to his car? You have to have some sense of the bigger picture here. We are holding a trial 10 miles away from where that guy got shot because a cop kneeled on a man's neck for nine minutes and 20 seconds, uh, 29 seconds and killed him. You would think of all places in the world that this place would be the one place where they would take a little more time and proceed with a little more caution to all situations. And that didn't happen. And again, it's because the color of his skin, subconsciously, you view that as a threat. And that is exhausting because you rob me of my humanity. I am not your enemy. I'm, well, as, an, I'm as American as anybody else, but yet I'm perceived as a threat. And that's reinforced 
through these stereotypes, through these assumptions. I mean, honestly, guys, I'm at a point now where I'm like, if this is the way you're going to treat me and I'm a tax paying citizen, then fuck it. I shouldn't have to pay taxes for this shit, because if we really want to run the country like a business, which is what I hear all the time from my friends on the right, we should run everything like a business. Then as a consumer, I'm not paying for this fuck shit. This is terrible service. So as far as I'm concerned, I shouldn't have to pay fucking taxes if this is how you're going to fucking treat me. And if ten, and if if twelve percent of the population, if twenty percent of the population, or let me say it differently, if marginalized people in this country all decide we're not paying taxes until you change the shit, all of a sudden shit might get changed because again you got to follow the money. But I'm just like I said, my heart is heavy, and I, I just feel a certain type of way well, right I'd now. I tell you, one of the ways I think that if you want to change gun legislation, I think black people need to just go and start getting these AKs and these automatic rifles. And I guarantee you that it'll change real quick because they don't want it because that goes again. Everything is weaved into the perception of fear, right? So you don't want them to have it. So then they'll go and get it. Uh, I don't know if you saw what Questlove posted about, um, about this, but he posted, and you're going to hear these, and you're going these names are going to immediately come to mind to you. Um, a white lady said he was whistling at her. Those Skittles look like a gun. He was sleeping in his car in the drive-thru. He maybe tried to use a fake $20 bill. That cell phone looked like a gun. She left her front door open. He had a legal firearm in his car. He was selling loose cigarettes. That pill bottle looked like a gun. He was sitting on his sofa eating ice cream. She failed to signal a lane change. He was walking down the street with a friend. He was selling CDs and DVDs. He was sleeping in his own bed. He was in his grandmother's backyard. Those sandwiches sure look like a gun. He was unlocking his front door. He had an air freshener. Those are all normal things that Americans do. Yet, because the color of someone's skin it's a is different than yours, all of a sudden, it is a perceived threat. And that is what is so exhausting. And you're right. Every time you read one of those off, I'm saying to, my, I'm saying to myself... I know that name. I know that name. I know that name. I know that name. And honestly, like I went for a walk today, decided to kind of clear my head. Plus the weather was nice. And I got to thinking, Tubbs, you remember how I used to say how when it comes to offensive linemen, like from an NFL perspective, I really shouldn't know their name until they go in the Hall of Fame because they're kind of like nameless, faceless people. You know what I mean? But now I know the names of. Philando Castile and Eric Garner and Brianna Taylor and Dante Wright and Jacob Blake and George Floyd. And it's one of those things where like, I should not be building some sort of um, shrine in my mind for all of these innocent black folks that got killed for just trying to live their life. And yet here I am doing it. And again, that is a form of trauma. And it's exhausted. And then the other thing I, I think about sometimes is how that trauma is passed sort of generation to generation. Like I can remember like a granny and papa telling stories about, you know, the green book and like having to make sandwiches and stopping on the side of the road when they couldn't go to certain rest stops. And, and yeah, like you, uh, sundown towns where yeah, you, sundown you were towns a person of color, and, you, you got to be in, you got to be at your house before the sun goes down. Yeah, or even dad saying they had to be off the hill in his hometown by six o'clock. Like, like, you know, I've been accused of being calculating before. Like I'm always like thinking three and four steps ahead. 
But I'll be honest with you, as a grown man, I realize that's nothing more than a survival tactic. 100%. Well, that's what I was going to say when you were talking about the police, that lady, how she should have been more aware where they were having the trial. Like That would have been the one place where you think she's going to be on her P's and Q's. But I feel like that's one of those privileged things that as being born and raised black in America, we were raised to know exactly where we are, who's around us. Because at any point in time, it could be a life or death situation we're going to be in. Like, could you imagine Pawpaw, even though he was, what, born in, what, 19, he, no, 1917? 1917? 1917. Yeah, 1917. So that was like right, around, right after Tulsa. Yeah. So, and so, he's told stories, yeah. So, so he, they knew, even though they did not have any sort of technology, they probably knew all the people around in the whole state of Oklahoma and probably – outside of Oklahoma, that that happened and they need to be on alert. But you could ask the same white people in those neighborhoods and they would have had no, no idea. Well, we yeah, are like tuned in. Plausible we, deniability, right? Well, well, yes. well, to your, well, to your point, Wesley, uh, or not Wesley, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> he, he, just, he just went to bed, sorry. Um, um, so I remember having a conversation with him one time and so we're talking about racism just in general. And it and we got on the subject of whether it was worse in his time or now. And that now being like, I think we probably had this conversation maybe like uh, maybe 13, 2013, 2014, somewhere in there. And so I he was making – I was trying to make the argument that it's tougher now because it's more covert. Like the Klan doesn't wear – sheets anymore they wear suits right like people can you're able to disguise it so you're going to have to be on your p's and q's a lot more um but he was making i don't want to say making the argument and i wouldn't say it was like a win or loss type deal but he was talking about how like it the blatancy that it was just out there and you could just like feel it in the air and um his he also made a comment about how you could be trusting of somebody who you think is you know in, in many instances like an ally somebody that you can depend on um you know or somebody that you could be friendly with and then that person could be undercutting you the entire time and you could do nothing about it like if you did if that happened today if somebody you know if you thought somebody was cool near at, at work let's say and they were calling you the n-word or something like that you know there's a recourse for that right but if that happens in 1930 you got nothing. You just got to eat it and you just got to keep on going. Like if somebody um, cheats you out of something or somebody steals something from you, what's your recourse? Like you have more resources now than you would then. But, but I say all that to say that some of the, I don't want to say techniques, but a lot of it is still the same narrative. Like it's, some of these things are just ingrained and they are passed down. And certainly as a father of two boys, I know the things that I've dealt with in my lifetime. And, I try to bring those some of those experiences to them just in the same way that my father did it with me and you, Dennis. And so I'm sure we already with your dad. And then like it just it's something that has to be continually um, passed down because when the George Floyd thing happened, uh, and I think I don't I think I told I know I told you Dennis, I don't know if I told you already, but when the George Floyd thing happened, um, I had already in the well, say in the black community, especially when it comes to black men there's a certain point where you have to kind of sit down and you have to explain to them 
had to talk about, okay, this is, this is how this thing really works. This is how, you know, you got to be able to read between the lines. You got to, like you said, already keep your head on the swivel. You got to, you know, got to be aware of this. You got to be aware of that. And so the thing about doing that is that when you do that, you are essentially taking away that kid's childhood because now they have to be aware of like adult level things, but they're not an adult. And so I had been honest that we need to go ahead and talk to our oldest about it. And my wife, not she fought me on it, but she didn't fight me on it because she didn't because she disagreed with me. She fought me on it because she knew that when you did that, you ended that we were going to effectively end his childhood right then and right there. And she wanted to let him be a kid for as long as she could. And on some level, I didn't disagree. But when the George Floyd thing happened and I was like, listen, like, I'm sorry, we got to, we got to go ahead and we got to break that seal here. We have to have that conversation now because that's the last thing, you know, I want. I feel like I'd be derelict in my duty as a parent if he had an interaction with somebody in law enforcement and he didn't know the rules of the game. I would be derelict in my duty as a parent. And so, like you, like, and I'll I'll shut up here in a second. But um, like you said, that collective trauma of everything that's passed down, you're all we're always passing it down because we have to because it's like you say it's a defense mechanism. And that's what's just exhausting. That that you know I we have to live our life in such a way in which um, we have to do that, and it just really gets into a a two Americas situation and one of the things that i've you know really starting to come and realize and um i i can't find the words but what i'm coming to realize as i get older is the the sort of greatness for and i don't mean that in a positive way but the greatness of, of a concept like white supremacy is that it's invisible to the people that benefit from it and it's totally totally all around you when you are being oppressed by it. And so it's hard to fight. An, it's just like COVID. It's hard to fight an enemy that you cannot see. It's even harder to fight an enemy that you don't believe exists. And so these things are real. And you're right. We're not going to be able to sort of dismantle this in a day, a week, or a month. It's going to take time. But you can't say you care about people and then not work to at least vote to put people in power who will at least make it fair for everyone. And so that's why I'm, I, I, we just live in two Americas now. And it's exhausting to live in two Americas. And it, it, it's, um, it's a lot because I think even as black folks or marginalized people in general, you know, all of a sudden you go to work and now you got to be a different person. You can't be your authentic self because if you're, if the color of your skin can be weaponized against you on the street, it might be weaponized against you on your job too. And I'm not saying that every employer in America does that. Cause I do think there are a lot of places that are really trying to um, ensure that they are being inclusive and being diverse and creating equity with their employees and all of that. I would not put every um, business into that category. But what I would challenge is this type of thinking is so pervasive because it's a lot of it is subconscious. It's this concept of uh, unconscious bias, you know, and I think you see it play out not to 
diverge off the subject, but I think this is an example. The NFL draft is in like two weeks. All of a sudden, the, the second best quarterback in this draft or the best quarterback in this draft, depending on your opinion, is Justin Fields. But he's slipping. And you start hearing all of these narratives and all of these tropes about, well, he doesn't read defense as well. And he's a real good athlete, but he's not really accurate. This, that, and the third, blah, blah, blah. It's like, what football are you guys watching? Like, and, and it just, it it's just exhausting to have to see some uh, see that over and over and over and have that sort of reinforced to you um, in a way that um, suggests that you're less than, you know, equal or you're not, your humanity is something that can be bargained or negotiated with. And again, I don't think that people are sort of doing this. Um, some are, but I don't, by and large, I, I think we're, we're evolving as a country to where, you know, perhaps, and Artie, maybe this is the optimist in me, I think it's one of those things where I'd like to think that we're moving to a place where people are now realizing that they have these thoughts subconsciously, that they've taken action based on this sort of implicit or this unconscious bias or these sort of subconscious thoughts, and they don't know what to do with it. You know what I mean? And I think you see a lot of that. You saw a lot of that a year ago when all of a sudden everybody's rushing out to buy books on black culture and understanding structural racism and all of that sort of stuff. And I think it's one of those things where people are now really trying to reconcile, like, what do I do? Where do I go? And, you know, it's one of those things where I'd like to be a good friend and I'd like to tell you, you know, you can do these things, but honestly, just be a good fucking person and don't assume that I or someone who looks like me is a threat to you because of the color of my skin. Don't assume that someone who speaks a different language or worships a different God is a threat to you. Don't do that. And, and that's like right now, and I'm saying this cause my heart is heavy. Um, but to me, like that's at this point, that's all I got to give. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I don't have, at least I don't have it in me right now to come up with better words or give better advice. Like, I'm just exhausted and I'm tired. That's all. Uh, I, I'm with you. I, with like what, what you guys were saying about, like, we're moving in a good direction. Like Brian said, raising kids, it's, it's you, we have to tell them the history and how to survive day to day. But what we also have to do, make sure we do, is give them accurate and with the times ways on how to respond to certain situations. Like when we were growing up, I assume, like if we were told we were called the N word or, um, like I said, someone's screwing us over, like just kind of muscle through it because no matter who you tell, it's not really going to change. Nothing's going to happen. But now I tell my girls, you might have that, but you need to tell someone because the way culture is going, tell a teacher, tell a, another authority figure, and you, it might change. Something's going to happen. That person's probably going to get consequences. So where my dad told me, just keep your mouth shut, just don't draw any more attention, make it through the end of the day. At this point, if that happens at school, I'm like, you need to go tell somebody. And then I'll be up there the next day to make sure it was happening. Kind of. No, I, yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same way. The first thing I usually tell the kids is, if something pops off, like, hey, did you tell somebody? 
because I want to document it because obviously I know about it. So we need to make sure other people know about it. And so, and then we, you know, we take it from there. Artie, you telling that story reminds me of the time, um, Brian, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I would prefer that you tell his story uh, of the time you had an incident in school when you were like in the third grade and you came home and you told dad about it. And the next day, dad went to school, took took off work, went to school in the biggest, brightest Malcolm X T-shirt he had and went up to the school and demanded to see the principal. <laughs> and then uh, that that substitute teacher was never allowed to teach oh, in, oh, in, yes. in our hometown ever again. Can you please? Because already said that I was like, again, triggers that triggered that thought. Like, yep, like that's an experience that that um, that we sort of been through. And it's like it's crazy to me how something like that triggers a thought in you, and now you're replaying that trauma, and that's exhausting. But but that's you here. T- please tell that story because I think it's. Um, I, I think it's important. I think it's relevant right now. All right. So, and I'll be brief with it. Uh, so when you were a kid, or at least when we were kids, you used to read the scholastic news, uh, used to come in the classroom. So like a little like kids newspaper, you know, whatever. And so I can't remember what the story was specifically, but it mentioned, uh, African-Americans mentioned black people. And, um, the teacher looked at me and said, well, you're a part of that race. So what do you think about it? And so I'm in the fourth grade. So like that puts me at like, what, nine or 10, somewhere in there. So clearly not worldly in, in, in terms of having a position one way or the other. And I just kind of was like, I don't, you know, I don't know. And then I came home and I told my parents and I just remember them being so pissed. Um, and so, uh, like I said, told my dad. And so my dad goes up there, like you've had this. He goes up there the next day, and a uh, the shirt was white, but there's a picture of Malcolm X on the front, and on the back there was an X, but the X was in like uh, it was like was it this was a green, black, and and red, red, red or so, something like that. Something but it was like, like the whole back of the shirt was like the biggest X you'd ever seen. Yeah. So he went up there, and his I mean, and rightfully so, but this whole thing was a, um, that's completely unnecessary and uncalled for what you, and B, why would you ask a nine-year-old that? Like that's, he was just uh, miffed on both fronts, but certainly, like I said, the, the race part was the bigger one of the two. Um, and then, so as a result that teacher was not allowed to be a sub in the entire district, um, because, because of that one incident. So kind of going back to what we originally talked about already, that person made a mistake. Maybe it was an honest mistake, but she made a mistake. So there is a consequence for that. And as a consequence, she was not allowed to be a substitute teacher in our district. Yeah, and I, 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 yeah. Go ahead, Artie. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Artie. I was just going to say, wrapping about, circling back around to the police thing, I think it, truly if we can get people to be held accountable, especially police officers or people in authority in general, especially in law enforcement, to get, be accountable for their um, mistakes, I think that will have a domino effect that we'll see some meaningful change in the behaviors of the policing. But yeah. I don't think trying to just go at behavior first is going to help anything. Yeah, I think so. I, it's a, it's a, it's really a culture of policing, and that goes back to slave patrols and, and all yes. of that sort of thing. And I, th- I just think people don't necessarily um, – 
understand the history of it because I think in today's society, and I would say we've been this way for probably at least the last 40 years, it's more of we, we tend to live in the moment and we tend to move moment to moment because there's so much coming at us. Like how many times do you really stop and be selfish and really sort of think about how all of this is sort of um, interconnected? But one of the things that I think you guys just mentioned about how accountability um, is even in accountability, um, a lot of times we're still living in a two Americas sort of situation. So, for example, like I, I mentioned before, like I'm already prepared for Derek Chauvin to get off for the murder of George Floyd. Like I've already sort of prepared myself emotionally that this is going to happen via a hung jury or a mistrial or something along those lines. Like I like I'm told I'm preparing myself for that now. And it's a bit of a process, but, you know, from a two Americas perspective, if that's not a black man, if that's a, a Labrador and he's kneeling on a Labrador's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds, oh, all of a sudden, enraged. I mean, you saw what happened to Michael Vick. Michael Vick just got out and out canceled. I mean, I know people that won't forgive Mike Vick to this day, even though he's done his time. He's partnered with PETA. He owns pets like he's made amends for it. And a lot of times it's never going to be enough. And so I get it. But that and I'm not trying to say that, you know, kneeling on a dog is, you know, better or worse. It's a terrible thing. No one should ever do that. But my thing is, if you can be that outraged about a dog, why can't you be that outraged about another human being? Or were you force fed a bunch of bullshit relative to the color of my skin? A hundred percent. That's what it is. Like, they, literally, I don't know if, if we can truly appreciate that, though, because like it, I, I want to say I pity pity certain group of people, but they have literally been told lies for hundreds of years. Steady. Can you? So st- can, 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 I, I want you to stop right there because you hit on something that I think is really important that was going to reinforce this point that you just made. There are two lies I think about um, in that context that um, have a direct impact on what happens today. The first one is the lie that God wanted us to own all of the land from sea to shining sea. Manifest destiny. Like, yeah. the idea that you were going to own the land that other people lived on because God said so. Like, it's an out-and-out lie, but you built an entire nation sort of around this concept. Because you thought it was your God-given right. And the second one, and I think this one really plays into today, is I saw a documentary a while back about um, uh, the history of marijuana in this country. And it gets into medical marijuana and its you know scientific purposes and all that. But it starts with its origin and in terms of why it and how it got banned. And it got banned because in the 20s, a lot of the jazz uh, players, like in jazz clubs, like that's where you went. If you wanted to go kick it and have a good time, you went to jazz clubs. Well, in jazz clubs, they smoked a lot of weed. Well, guess what? They were attracting a certain type of person. They were attracting 
because everything was segregated then, but they were attracting white women to these black clubs because the music was good and they were smoking weed, kicking it, having a good time, not bothering nobody. So what happened? They made it illegal. They made weed illegal and made it a schedule one narcotic and then sold everybody on the idea that it was deviant, that it was uh, evil. It was immoral. Like you're not going to go to heaven if you smoke weed. And this was all done as an attempt to ensure that white women wouldn't mingle with black men when really they were just there to dance and smoke weed and have a good time and go home. And that was it. So these sorts of things get reinforced all the time And we're living with it today. Now, you hear that today, and you're like, this is stupid. I mean, all these states are, I mean, New York just changed the law the other day. So now, in New York, you can have up to three ounces on you, and you can have up to five pounds in your house. And it's legal. Like, we've come that far. And if you got convicted on a marijuana charge that is anything less than distribution, um, it's going to be expunged from your record. Like, but it took a hundred years, about a hundred years to get to that point. And you think about all of the unnecessary pain and trauma that was caused off of that policy because you were scared of something that you never should have been scared of. You know, that, that brings up a, a point I want to highlight is like fear. Cause I feel like with dealing with trauma, like in the African American community, in the African American community, we've been navigating or working with fear forever. Like just getting up and going to work throughout history, once we could work, we were dealing with fear. We always deal with fear, whether it's a pullover. And I don't think like non-minorities are used to that. So when, when when culture's changing and it's like... They're having to go back on everything they've been told, been learned. It is a, it is scary, and they don't know how to cope or move forward. So I, I find a lot of them retreat back to the old bigoted teachings They instead of getting over that fear of something new or being wrong or what, what have you. And it, that is super frustrating for me. And you know, and I'm glad you said that because I just finished Adam Grant's book called Think Again, and it's talking about no, the concept of like knowing thing or um, the art of not knowing, right? And so he has this section in his book where he's talking about a uh, black guy who um, jazz player kind of just played around town, and then there was another white guy who came and um, and kind of thought that guy was in the KKK, but they started talking, and you know, you kind of see how. You know the the uh, the way it kind of starts melting a little bit in terms of you know that facade of you know he's hardcore you know whatever and so he talks about there's an instance where the black guy and the white guy are in a car and he was asking him about you know you know well, why are you the way you are and you know whatever and so the white guy who was the KKK the the racist he was like. Well, you know, black people are inherently violent. They're inherently lazy. And, like, he's just laying, like, this whole laundry list of just just incorrect tropes and just all these, you know, all, all the stuff you could think of that you've heard about black people was said in that conversation. But the black guy honed it on the serial killer part. 
or, or the, the poem for violence. She's like, okay, well, name me some black serial killers. And then the guy got quiet. <laughs> and, and then yeah. he was like, and, well, he was like, we're trafficking facts around well, here, oh, buddy. Yeah, he, he, and he was like, well, that's just because it's dormant and it's not active. He's like, well, dormant. Yeah. So he's like, so, so it's dormant. So it's dormant for all black people. Like that makes no sense. And then he was like, and so then the black guy was like, oh, okay. Well, here, let me name you some some white serial killers. Tell and me when to stop. Just, just tell he, me when to stop. And, and, and he just keeps going. And then he was like, so to me, I guess I'm in the car with a serial killer. Because it's probably just dormant in you. Statistically uh, so speaking, yes. 100%. So it's just dormant in you. And then the and then the white guy got completely offended. I was like, well, wait a minute. No, that's not true. That's stupid. Why would you even say something like that? And he was like, exactly. Think of how dumb that sounds. And that's how dumb you sound. Uh, I extrapolate that line of thinking across all culture. You know, I I pretty much heard that exact same thing today, Brian, speaking of the police situation. Because I was like, why do cops... I was just trying to level with the person because they were super far right. And I was like, it's the implicit implicit bias of a police officer walking up to a car with a black person with their hand on their gun. Might not even be out, but just their it's a threat. So it's already their hands there, but with a white person, their hands on their, not on their, just on their side. I was like, it's yeah. the implicit bias that you've been told. They're like, well, do you think it's because maybe because black people do the most violence? Cause that's all you see on the news. And that's all that's covered is black people. I'm like, what? <laughs> no, like I can't, like, I can't even, I can't like you actually, it is like, I actually believe she, they, the person actually believes this. And I'm like, how can you combat like decades of misinformation. Artie, I'm glad you said that because it, because here's the thing. Here's the thing. You're going to tell me that me getting pulled over at a traffic stop, I'm a threat to the cop, even though he's got his hand on the gun ready to shoot me. Yet, let's be honest, a half a million people that look like you stormed the Capitol. And all you know what I mean? Like what what are we talking about here? And and we found out today that they, that the uh that the security there were told not to use violent tactics against them. No, because we could never commit white on white crime here. We yeah, could never so. do that here. You know what I mean? Because at that point we would just descend into chaos. But you know, just like we recorded, Brian, that night when all that happened, if it was 40,000 Koreans, if it was 70,000, you know, uh, lesbians, if it was a million Mexicans, it would have been chitty, chitty, bang, bang, all the way up there. The blood is running through the streets and they would have felt justified in it. And the most frustrating thing about all of it, about all of it, and this is something that we do not talk about enough, is they would have felt justified in it, and they would have basically said, well, it was our God-given right. They would call themselves Christians and claim to believe in Jesus as they slaughtered all of those people and felt justified in doing it. And that is the most insulting thing to me. Yeah, I mean, that it's, any other group, it would have been a lot different. If you were any marginalized person, let's say they were all, let's say 60,000 Sikhs who are religious folks that wear turbans, but they're not Muslim. Sikh is a specific religion. Because they appear to be Muslim in your mind, all of a sudden they're a perceived threat. 
Black Lives Matter protest over the summer, and they call them the National Guard and everything. But to your point, Brian, because these are all white folks, and there's an assumption that these folks are not threats, even though y'all got all the intel that says they come in with ill, with oh, no, ill no, no, intent. No. There, there, there's, you know what? It, one of the things that I have been told is that um, they just they felt like they were, their voices weren't heard. And to my response was, you name me a time in the history of this country where a white per- white person's voice has never been heard. Yeah, we're we're waiting. <laughs> yeah, I'll- well, it's like what Dave Chappelle said is like like they felt black what it was like to be a minority for two minutes and they went crazy and stormed the Capitol. So I'm um, funny you said that, Artie. So not to make it story time, but. You reminded me of something I heard today. So Danny Ainge um, is a was a hell of an athlete in his younger days, NBA player, uh, GM of the Boston Celtics, um, was asked a question not too long ago about why aren't there more white American basketball players? Because when he played in the 80s, there were a lot of them, him, Burke, Tom Chambers, McHale, uh, Rambis, like there were got Jack Sigma, like there were guys that could play. And he said, really, it came down to two things. Number one, we really, uh, there's just more money. So everybody has more opportunity to do other things that they might be interested in. That's part of it. The other part of it is these kids today don't want to go through the grind of having to prove themselves because they would talk about how he would talk about how, you know, in order to get like a really good pickup game. And I've heard Larry Bird sort of speak to this as well. They had to like drive down in the hood and to go get the pickup, you know what I mean? To go to a pickup game, to be able to play against competition that was as good as them, if not better. So, you know, as soon as a white boy steps on the court, the first thing that you're going to say is, oh, who's got the white boy? And there's always an assumption that the white boy can't play until you find out that he can play. And if you don't think that's true, just go watch White Man Can't Jump. That's the whole <laughs> premise of the movie. And it's the yep. whole premise. Of, and, and, and that's as a 90s movie as there ever was. But he said it's to the point now where these kids don't want to go through that grind and have to prove themselves. And for the first time in their lives, they're experiencing what it's like to be a minority, and they don't like it. So when you look at the NBA today, all the, every white person that you see is European. Like the best yes. sort of like homegrown American basketball player in the NBA is Gordon Hayward, who plays for Charlotte. And Gordon Hayward is a good player. He's been an all-star, but that's not a guy that's going to go to the Hall of Fame. I mean, that guy couldn't sniff anywhere near Larry Bird. Oh, yeah, but that's man. where we're at, Artie, because these kids today don't want to experience what it's like to be a minority. Yeah. And, and and no no one does is the thing. Like, <laughs> that's it, Artie. Thank you for saying it. No, no one, one does. does. No one does. But I shouldn't have to live my life in this sort of fashion to where I'm constantly looking over my shoulder. Why am I nervous every time I get pulled over? I shouldn't have to live like that. Yet, not only am I forced to live like that, not only am I forced to navigate my life in such a way as to where survival was like the instinct that kicks in at all times, it's 
People know I shouldn't have to live like that, but won't lift a finger to change it. So now yeah. you understand. So, so when this, when this army lieutenant gets pulled over and questioned and pepper sprayed while he's in his uniform on account of air freshener swinging from the mirror and you can't see the license plate or the 30 day tags. This is why Kaepernick took a knee. That's the very reason why he took a knee. But you wanted to cancel Kaepernick, but you won't cancel this type of systematic injustice. And the sad part about it all is we're going to get up tomorrow. We're all going to go to work. And in a day or two, someone else is going to get shot. Yeah, yeah we're, unfortunately. Pre- we're, precon- we're preconditioned to, um, you know, the sh- I won't say the show goes on, but sadly, you know, remember when the George Floyd thing, when that happened, it was like, you know what? Yeah. Check back with me in six months to a year and see what happens. And like, yes, we're having the trial now. So of course it's front of mind, but like, it just, it life just goes on because it, a, it has to, but B something else is going to come and take, uh, take that headline or that page, or certainly it's going to be, it just, the ball gets passed from George Floyd so now it gets passed to this gentleman or went to, it went to Jacob Blake and then it gets passed to this gentleman. Right. And there's probably, what, what, and those are, those are the ones that we know about. Yeah. That's what important. What you say with the, with the George Floyd, because then this, you said earlier, you're preparing yourself. I'm an optimist with this because the, the circle I, I deal with on a regular basis, there people are pretty far right. So I've heard all the justifications, but even them, it gets to a point where, they make it back around. They're like, "Yeah, he he's guilty," because even though all like the backtrack of this person was on this drug or he's doing this, or I was like, that is still a normal police day. Like they have dealt with people on drugs. They dealt. I was like, the fact is, every day, already every like, day, someone's got drugs like, in their system. Like, what are we talking I know. about? Because they because we because we were all in agreement. And I was like, I am shocked because it was like we could have a whole different conversation what was leading up, what, how they got him to the ground, what kind of force they use, all that stuff. We can, that's a whole different conversation before he is handcuffed on his stomach. Oh, After okay. that, even then they're like, mm, yeah, they're yeah. like, I hate all that. He's, but then when the, he probably should have got off. Yeah. So he killed the person. <laughs> so, but that's, a, but that's the, but, 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 but two things. Number one, if it's funny how, if a black person has drugs in their system, they're a threat. But if it's, you know, um, somebody who's living in a holler in West Virginia who's addicted to opioids all of a sudden well, it's on they've got a substance, a substance abuse issue and they just need treatment and counseling well why can't you afford that same humanity to someone who doesn't look like you that really says a lot about you you're a pretty shitty person and the other mm-hmm. thing too the, the George Floyd case and I can't stop thinking about it in this context if you're going to tell me that you felt like George Floyd was a real threat to you as a police officer, if you really feel like he was a threat to your personal safety that required you to kneel on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds, why were your goddamn hands in your pocket? No one who was being threatened stands there with their hands in their pocket. 
There isn't a person walking. Yeah, so the, I, yeah. Fuck, Artie, there isn't an animal on this planet that would stand there with their hands in their pockets. You've seen enough nature shows to know that if there is a perceived threat, it's fight or flight. And you sat there with your hands in your pants pockets as you took his life because you could. Yeah. Well, and that just goes back to our, what we've learned over time. We've been told so many times when, this, when there's a black person, the cops are threatened or scared. They have their gun. They shoot them. So obviously he was not worried because his training would have been told to him to have his gun out. Yeah. So he just was not threatened. He yeah. just and, and I, I will say this because I think this is important. Um, the reason why I want to make sure I say this right. If you remember back to when OJ got acquitted, when they found him not guilty and everybody was up in arms, either you were celebrating or you couldn't stand. How in the world could they come to that conclusion when it was so obvious? I think what what people who were outraged that OJ got acquitted, what they missed is what OJ represented. OJ, I don't know a black person walking the earth that doesn't believe or know in their soul that OJ killed those two people. I haven't met anybody in 25 years that would tell me OJ didn't do it. But the reason why black people and marginalized people celebrate is because of what OJ represents. Not that he's a guy who got acquitted a double murder, but he represents a black man that got a fair trial in the system that historically has not given fair trials for people who have committed lesser charges. People have been sent to prison or killed for worse or worse and I don't need to give you names at all, but I think people need to understand, um, and not to give a preview, but this is something I want to get into, is the concept of why black people always root for each other, because there's some science behind it. But I think you need to understand what you were really witnessing is a release of euphoria that comes from centuries of pain and trauma. That here is somebody who actually triumphed in the system because they had the resources to actually fight a fair fight. No one's celebrating that OJ killed yeah. two people. He, he and, no. and, and speaking of cancel culture, if there's anybody anywhere that should be canceled, it's probably him. Like, we don't need to hear from OJ on anything at all ever, ever okay. again. But I think it's one of those things where that's why people celebrate it. I can remember being in the library in high school when the verdict came down and people were black. I was black class. were running down the hallway screaming, he got off, he got off, he got off. And all the white people were around, like, everybody was just so upset. Like, how? Like, it's double murder. It was so obvious, blah, blah, blah. It was very obvious. But... Well, well, well. To to your point, if you watch that OJ thirty for thirty, one of those jurors basically told you in no uncertain terms that like the reason they, it, it, the the view of the black people on that jury was that okay, how many of us have you put away with flimsy evidence or you have set us up or you know you know planted or you know whatever and then Furman didn't make any matters worse. So basically, this was like a one time deal to like. You know, I don't want to say put your nose in it, but, but you know, they basically because I agree with you, Des. I think we can all probably agree that he did kill those people. Like, I don't think that that's really in dispute at this point. 
but I think it was them kind of thumbing their nose at the system a little bit. Yeah. Now, and, and, yeah, I, and I think so he did get off on Well, he did get off on that, but obviously he, because of his own incompetence, he found himself in prison for other things, but he wasn't going to go to jail for that. No, well, I, th- I believe he got off too because he used all the same tactics that people with money, usually white people, do. He got found a loophole and all sorts of weird tactics that, like, well, well yeah, he, he, he black could, people don't. He get could to afford do. the representation to point out things like the police uh, didn't follow protocol; they mishandled evidence. I mean, one cop testified that they had evidence that they found at OJ's house that he put in his trunk and took it back to his house before checking it in as evidence the next day. That's reasonable doubt. De- that's reasonable go. doubt right there. You didn't follow proper protocol. <laughs> so how do I know that you didn't frame him? And if you understand the backdrop and the history of the LA Police Department, they don't really get the benefit of the doubt anyway. But to bring this sort of full circle, when we start talking about sort of like the trauma of things, I read something today that really hit home for me that Fred Hampton's mom on the west side of Chicago Mm. used to babysit Emmett Till and George Floyd's girlfriend is a teacher and used to teach Dante Wright. And I'm a big believer in the idea that the universe is about balance and you missed the other one too. It wasn't Eric Gar- that, that lieutenant that got pulled over. Isn't he he's like Eric Garner's nephew. Yeah, the guy in Virginia in the in the army fatigues that got pulled over on pepper spray is the nephew of Eric Garner. And so it's one of the it, it's it's real similar to the concept of um, Lincoln's secretary is Kennedy. And last name was Kennedy, and Kennedy's secretary's last name was Lincoln. It's it's. It's funny how it comes back around that way. And all I'm trying to say, and I think you guys are really saying the same thing. I don't want to speak for you, but um, it's not enough anymore to say things shouldn't be that way. It's not enough anymore to say, I wish things were different. It's not enough to say anymore, um, I I care about you as a person or, um, well, when I see you, I don't see color. If you don't see color when you see me, then you don't see me at all because you're refusing to acknowledge how the color of my skin impacts my life and how I have to navigate this world. Well, we that's what we tell our daughters all the time because it's like, well, not the youngest, but our oldest because it's like we want you to have friends. We don't want you to have the friends that don't say, oh, I don't see color. I love you like I love everyone. Well, good for you, but that that doesn't help. That doesn't protect my daughter. Like, I need friends that see your blackness, say, we're not going to this party. We're not going to go in this situation because we have one of our friends, one of part of our crew is black, and we're not going to put her in that situation or in that location. Because that's what friends do. Exactly. So we want we want your friends to see your color before their own, for the most part. <laughs> right, and just be aware that how I have to – we as black people or as marginalized people, and I think it's important that this gets expanded beyond just a narrow thing of black and white. It's really about marginalized people because, um, you know, Latinos are going through this every day. You know, gay people are going through this. Asian Americans, you know, gay Americans, like just name any sort of marginalized group. Any minority. I mean, even women with sexism. Everybody's going through it. 
everybody's going through it, but it's, and it's not necessarily about the powers that be so much as it is the system that's been built is so codified. Now it's almost impossible to dismantle. And I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm saying, you know, we talked um, a couple days ago about, you know, sort of cancel culture and the idea of where businesses are at in cancel culture. And I thought about this and I, I really want to get you guys perspective on it. And that is, in my mind, I'm cynical about businesses getting in this space about um, social justice issues only because they're going to protect their bottom line. So it's in their best interest to protect their bottom line. And their bottom line says our consumer base is 18 to 49 and those people don't go for that. So we're not going for it either. What happens if that changes? That's my concern about it, if, if, if that makes sense. Because already to your point, well, you know I, you've got a you've got a um, uh, an older daughter who you want her friends to see them through that light, and maybe it's you know American Eagle selling T-shirts that promotes social justice. If that reinforces um, sort of her belief, or if it gets her to start thinking about it in a different light, to be more socially aware about how people are being treated. I I want to say I'm all for it, and they made money off it. But what happens if the winds change? You know what I mean. That's where I'm skeptical, and I'm I'm cynical. I agree, but I I have to look to the past for the future on that, and I feel like it is getting better. So it might it might be going at a snail's pace a lot slower than we want to. But like Brian was saying earlier. I do think pop on them had it worse because I feel like they, the key thing is they didn't have hope. Like they could just walk, walk down the street and someone could just lynch them in the middle of the street and nothing happened. At least or, we, I feel like we have, hope or, there, or, or, there, or, or their, or their hope is that it would be better for us. Yes. And we can actually see some, see, we saw how bad it was and we can see some slow progress going. So progress always wins eventually history has shown us that so we just have to keep that in mind just keep going forward even though it might feel like we're might take a step back or or a stalled yeah and i think that's that's where sort of i'm becoming impatient about it you know where every time one of these incidents happens you know i'm forced to relive you know this trauma in a very sort of ptsd fashion like brian i remember Every time someone gets pulled over, I think about this. I remember the time we were coming back from downtown. I think we went to like a wrestling show or something. We got pulled over in our hometown. You were driving. The cop pulled us over right there by the library. So he walks up to the car, asks for license and registration. You cough it up. And then he comes back and he says, well, listen, I'm going to call the dog. So if there's anything you want to, you boys want to tell me, um, you know, you can go ahead and tell me now. So you looked at me and looked back at the cop and said, I tell you what, why don't you call the dog so we can be surprised together? And then he went back, let us all came back, let us off the warning and we went on our way. No, 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 no. He gave me the ticket. He gave me the ticket. But, but in that instance, in, in, in that er, at that moment, I don't want to say it was, you know, me older me now, like it's like, oh, what are you doing? But on the flip side, I just felt like at that time, like, I knew I had nothing to hide, and I knew I had nothing in the car. It was just me and you, and our only crime was doing thirty-five and twenty-five. <laughs> so, if 
so if you because he said do you have any gun do you have any guns or drugs in the car i said no he said are you sure i said yes this is my car are you are you sure who the fuck are you ask me am i sure i pay for you see that's the shit that pissed me off (laughs) yeah so he goes back to the car he's like because i'll call the dogs he comes back to the car i'll call the dogs and i said well you can call them and we'll both be surprised together because there's nothing in this car um so then he gives me uh this but i will tell you another time that i got pulled over and this is probably the, the scariest one for me was I was pulled over because in our hometown, because I had apparently made a wild left hand turn. In the, in I don't know that I've heard this story. Um, so I said, okay. So I'm sitting in the car. I got my, you know, you know, 10 and two, like, you know, like we've been trained 10 and two. Right. So, um, cop, you know, it's just one cop at this time. So he gets my license registration. I give it to him. He goes back to his car and I'm just kind of looking in the mirror, mirror kind of waiting, you know, whatever. He comes back and says, I need you to step out of the car. And so I said, okay, I step out of the car. There are two more cops there. So now it's me, the original cop and two other ones for me and so he says um have you been drinking i said and keep in mind this is at like like one o'clock and i think i had i had worked that day so i didn't i met i think i met you guys at the bar or something so i didn't get there till like 12 30 so i went had a beer got tired i went home so i had one beer so i was like i had one beer and so, again, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm sure. And so, so then I see both of those other cops start walking towards the car. And they're kind of talking to themselves. And then eventually they stop talking and they just dead eyed look at me. And so he looks, at, he looks at my license and he says, hey, it says here that you're supposed to be wearing glasses. But I don't see you wearing glasses. And so I took my finger and just moved my contact lens. So it's like, I have contacts in, so I'm compliant. Um, and then he starts asking me questions about where I live. And this is back then when we had the house. And so I said, and I was, the left turn, by the way, is, uh, you know, on Morris. So I'm going west. And so I said, my house is literally like five minutes down the road. And so he started acting like he didn't believe me. And then the other cops are standing there. And I started to get agitated, but, you know, again, I know my training. I cannot get upset. I cannot, you know, take it there. So I just calmly said, that is my address. I'm not lying to you. If you do not believe me, um, feel free to follow me home. Or you can drive me home. But I literally live five minutes away from you. And then so he goes, he talks with the other two cops so they're having this sidebar. I'm standing by my car. I have no idea what's going on, whether whether they're going to do something to me or they're going to let me go. I have no idea. And that fear that's inside of you is something that, you know, something we talked about before, that a lot of people who are not us don't get. And everything is out of your hands. And if this man wants to come out here and, 
you know, say I was resisting arrest or I was giving him sass or whatever the case may be, everything at my in my life at that time was at the, at that man's disposal in his hands. So he comes back and he says, "Well, I guess as long as you're going home, we can let you go." And it was just like, "Okay." All right. So then I get in the car and I see him kind of following me because apparently my word is not good enough. So he follows me up to the city limit. And then once I pass over the city limit, then he does a U-turn and goes back. All because you fit the description. Yeah, because I made a wild left turn. Yeah, but but define wild. Like, I, like, you know what I mean? Like, I've been pulled over because I didn't put my turn signal on. It's like, come on. You got you ain't got nothing better to do. You got me for a turn signal? But because you assume, it's, and, and it's just, it's, it's exhausting. Well, you know, I had, I had a similar, not, not as great as Brian's. It was similar, but it was. Oh, it's not great. When I had the, when I got the tipper on, um, it was, it was on. What Grand Granville or right in front of uh, McDonald's old classic McDonald's, yeah. and um, it was because the t- apparently I fit the description of a stolen car, my the Tiburon, and I was like, "There's not even like," I I just remember I had to ask him twice because I was like, "That is so odd to me." <laughs> I was like, "I I would never have stolen a car." I was like, "It really was like middle of the day, like three o'clock, like going." probably Eastern or something. And I was just like, what in the world? But it was the same thing. Take step out, take this, take the uh, license, go back. And I was like, Oh my, like in like, where I said like that fear of like, whatever he says, apparently I'm guilty of something like, cause it's just going to be my word. And you're, and, and you're guilty of being black. That's what you're guilty of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, I wanted to ask you guys a question. So the most frustrating thing for me, um, trying to talk to people about this, is when the art usually comes on how to get out of a police encounter, like how not to die. And it's the fact that like we have like a certain script, like we said, we can't have a bad day. We have to pretty much be perfect on our responses, our body language to whatever script is in that cop's mind. But when I'm arg- when I'm talking to people, they said, "Well, obviously, if you just complied or did this, you would have just been able to go home." And I'm like, "But that isn't right." But they were like, "Well, you would have got home. Like it stops at comply, you'll be fine." Like how do you pe- break pe- people? Past people that? say that like they don't put the cuffs on you and beat the shit out of you after they put the cuffs on. Like, like <laughs> don't get me wrong. I'm not saying True. that all cops do that because I know that all cops don't do. No, that. no. They, you know, the, the, I know that all cops don't do that, but there are some that do. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, um, or I don't, I don't, I don't pretend to know what the answer is. I, I really don't. I, I just know. You know, you've been referencing history a lot and going back to history to sort of look towards the future. The one thing I know historically in this country is that change happens when middle class white people say, I'm not going for that anymore. Whether it's women's suffrage or civil rights or or whatever, when middle class white people speak up and say, that's not right and we're going to do something about it. That's when change happens. My my 
Well, that's the most evident with the opioids. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because in the 80s, if you were addicted to heroin, you were a junkie. And that was very much an inner city thing. But once it started hitting places like Worthington and Pickerington, all of a sudden, well, it's more of a substance abuse issue. And my son, you know, or daughter's an addict and we got to get him help. Well, well, you know, you weren't affording that level of humanity to other people. But that's neither here nor there. But Well, well again, that's the concept of grace. Yeah. Well, and, and that, and just imagine, like, like you talk about trauma. Like, how does that play with your mental psyche? Like, you have this problem. You're asking for help for years, and people are like, "No, you're not worth it. You're not worth it." But you see, your neighbor starts having the same problem, and two days later, oh, this is this is an epidemic. We need to do something. You're like, "Am I crazy? What? What is going on here? Uh, am I not human?" Is and, and you know what? The, uh, there's a good Nef- uh, Netflix documentary on crack that talks exactly about that about how the humanity of it all comes into play now, but there was like such a lack of humanity to where it was such a scourge and a plague on the society that we got to lock up everybody. But the only people that got locked up were black and brown people. And so this goes to the whole sort of interconnectedness um, of things. But, you know, again, I, I, I just hope, and Brian, to your point, um, you know, check back with you in six months or a year, um, it, it did really warm my heart to sort of see when the protests came, the protests looked like America. It wasn't exclusively one thing. It's black folks, white folks, Asian folks, Latino folks, gay folks. You know, it was it was a melting pot of people because w- what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And to stand on well, like, the wrong, you don't want to be on the wrong side of this, yet so many people are rushing to it. And that is. <sighs> well, I think we're at a, we're at, we're at a point now where to me, I'm kind of with you, Dennis. Like, I don't like a lot of this doesn't move me in a sense of uh, like a lot of it just seems like words to me. Like people, I, I think there are people who genuinely mean well and they don't, you know, want these things, whether it be for me or whether it be for anybody else or people in their circle. And that's all fine and good. But like, call me when there's going to be legislation. Call me when um, you're going to find a better way to hold people accountable. Because, uh, because this is the plight of people of centuries, right? And the other, and the other thing too, to me, and it just, this might just be my own opinion, but we are also at a point now where I don't see how anybody can say, well, there's no racism in America, right? Even if you don't necessarily experience it, or maybe you don't have people who uh, maybe in your circle who experience it, but you can't look out across this whole country and the history of this country and say it doesn't happen, right? So, but now that you know that it's happening, what are you going to do about it? Because if this is a problem that black people could fix, they would have fixed it a lot. What do you tell, what, 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 what do you used to tell me all the time, Brian? You can't unknow something. Yeah, once you once you know something, you know it forever, right? You can't unring a bell. So at this point, what are what are people going to do about it? Because we as people of color um, can't fix it. It's not on us to fix it. We didn't build it. So it's on. No. So it's on other people to. It's on other people to uh, fix. And certainly, I would also extend that same thing to the LGBTQ community because they have a plight where it's a system that is built against them and they're looking for equal rights and they just want to be treated fairly. All because they're perceived, they're perceived as a threat 
that when they're really no threat at all. Like one of the things I never really understood about that is, and one thing that I have learned and experienced being around um, gay people, especially ones that that um, I've gotten to be good friends with and people that I care about, gay people are only interested in other gay people. The gay people are not out here turning straight people gay. <laughs> we could have a whole no, conversation about – Well, I was going to say just about we'll the, about gays and homosexuality and like the black, yeah, uh, I, I, black I, I, community. I didn't mean to change yeah. the subject. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's okay. But well, that's another episode, well, no. Marty. I'll, I'll, I'll keep you in mind for that one, but – but I was, but that's a good point though about like the protest stuff because it was it was heartening to see that. But like as you bring it around to your two different worlds, the other side they saw no protest. All they saw was right was rioting. So how yes. do you? Well, well, but, that, but again, that? it's the same concept of oh, it's just a few bad apples. So if it's a few bad apples from a cop's perspective, well, not all cops are not all cops are bad, and that's just a few bad cops, and we can deal with that. Then why can't you afford Brian to use your word? Why can't we afford that same grace to protesters who might loot and and loot and burn down buildings? Oh, it's just a few bad apples. But see, there's a bit of a double standard here, and that's where it starts to get annoying where you can, uh, you want to ask for grace, but you won't give it. And then again, that's where I get frustrated because the people that are saying that they want grace, but won't give it are the same people that are going to church on Sundays, hitting their knees, praying to Jesus. And it's like, if there's one thing about Christianity, that's very clear. The whole thing is about love and forgiveness and grace, but you can't extend it because to extend it to the people that are perceived a threat is to acknowledge that the, that it's a lie, and you can't do that. So what do you do? You fall back on the power structure, and yeah, you, you double or you down. Du- yeah, or you or double you down. down. Yeah. And, and historically, through the history of time, most likely you double down because it's perceived as a threat when really it was never really a threat at all. So, um, on that note, I'm, I think I want to end on something positive because I know this has been kind of heavy, but my heart's been heavy the last couple of days. And um, I, I wanted to talk to you guys because we had a really good conversation about um, cancel culture. So I, I thought I would um, bring you guys back to um, to just talk through it um, on a, a few things. So um, I'm curious, have you guys and I know this is going to be completely random. Um, so, you know, forgive me. But um, have you guys, like, what's the last good, like, bourbon whiskey that you've had? Hmm. Or it doesn't have to be bourbon. Well, whiskey. I just be, bought like, your... You know what I mean? Like, 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 you know, like, like what? I don't know, cigar. Like, what are your vices? Like, what's the last good thing you had? Because I've been really getting into this Uncle Nearest, this um, that I, Tennessee whiskey. I did, I did finally buy that. I did, I did finally get that. You told me I got last week. I had a little bit. I'm, I'm still trying. Which to one did you get? Did you, did you get the the black label, the 1856? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Okay, yeah. I think personally, I like that one better than the um, than the white label 1884. Um, but you're right. It's it, well, bourbon's different. So bourbon's not for everybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But, I, I'm just I, trying to broaden my broaden my taste, broaden my palate. Yeah, no, no, no. I get, it. I got you. But but it's one of those things. Give it some time. Sit with it. You know what I mean. Sit with it. Sip it. You'll you'll get there. But Brian, I know it's springtime, so I know what your go to is in the springtime. <laughs> I was going to say, um, is it still crown? So, oh well, yes, the variation of crown. Uh, it's the peach crown. So it'll get some peach crown. 
mix that with some uh, with some tea. Mm. It, and then now you got peach tea. See, that's the, uh, that, that sounds be, dangerous. I'm going to be honest with you. It, that's it, that, it, that's it, that COVID it, concoction, right? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 I mean, certainly it's no Hulk, but uh, you know, it'll do. Um, and uh, I would say um, I, you know, trying to, to eat a little better and do that type of stuff. But um, here recently, I've had a go to ice cream, and that is Grater's. Uh, peanut butter chocolate chip hmm. which is amazing so if you ever buy graters if you're in the you know where i am or just in the general vicinity in the city go to graters get yourself some uh, peanut butter chocolate chip ice cream uh, you will not and chase that with some some peach crown and some tea then you, oh, you, yeah. you, you, you just described a great summer day that's what you just did that, that's that that does sound yeah, exactly. Hopefully the cops don't come in and bust your door down on some bullshit while you're trying to enjoy your ice cream and your peach <laughs> crown. Well, you know, in the in the same way that Kylie Jenner extended uh, in, a, in the middle of a protest, she extended law enforcement a Pepsi. I would extend to them some Grater's ice cream. <laughs> yeah, man, just sit down. Hey, just sit down, man. We can talk it out. We can work you it want, out. You want a milkshake? Yeah, you whatever want you want, man. Just work, work. You know what? You know what? You can have a cone. <laughs> you know what I mean? We got Uber Eats. Like, I'll get you something, man. Just sit down, man. Relax. We'll talk it out. Like human like human I've beings. I thought about ordering graders to I, I thought about ordering graders to Uber Eats. I just ordering ice cream and having it delivered to me. I'm just fearful that, you know, sometimes people don't be on time. So I, I don't want that for the ice it's, cream. It's kind of, I mentally I, it's hard for me to fathom the concept of having ice cream delivered for the for the very reason you just described. So um, <laughs> yeah. I- yeah, like it's 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 that that's a hard that's a hard thing for uh for me to get around. So um that's tough. But fellas, I want to thank you guys for for jumping on here. This was this was really really good. Um, I, I know I got I always get something out of um having these conversations, especially when uh, uh when I get together with you guys and, and have and have these types of conversations because I know we had some a little bit um, already when you were in town for the tournament. Um, so it's always good to, to be able to, to wrap it up with you boys a little bit. Um, and like I said, my heart was heavy and, um, I just feel in a certain type of way. So I figured, um, you guys will be good to talk about it. Cause I know you guys got really good experiences and whatnot. So, um, thank you guys for jumping on. This was a good time, man. We'll, we'll do it again soon. Thanks for having me. All right, fellas. Thank you. Peace.